Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. Imagine living in a world without the technology to make ice. When you have a nice glass of iced tea in summer or a chilled adult beverage, it's something we all pretty much take for granted. But the story of how we've harnessed coal to make our lives more livable is the tale that author Fred Hogg tackles in his new book of Ice and Men, How We've Used Coal to Transform Humanity. From the most primitive uses of collecting ice and snow thousands of years ago to the modern cold chain that gets meat and vegetables safely to your supermarket, Hogg tells the stories of the people who have made this all possible. The British author lives in Thailand, and during our interview, you can hear many of the birds that live outside his home. Fred joined us recently to talk about how we've used cold to remake our place in the world. Fred Hogg, welcome to Blue Dot. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. And I really enjoyed this book. It was a fascinating topic that I never really would have thought Thank of you. for, you know, somebody to write a book about. So could you tell me, how did you arrive at wanting to do this project about uh, how cold has transformed humanity? Well, it, it's a very silly story, but it started out, my, my, my wife uh, writes food books um, and teaches and all the rest of it. I was helping her out with a class in London a couple of years back and making some cocktails for the for the customers and i happen to say of course without ice you can't have cocktails and somebody said prove it and i thought okay and, and that was kind of the beginning of the of, of the of the of the journey how did ice get into the cocktail was was my first question and and, and that led me to start reading and um it was basically the genesis of the whole book a very very silly place to start but you know um, I like a cold beverage as much as the next person. So, yeah, not if you like cocktails. It's not. That's. I think that's fascinating. And um, although that appears a little later on in your book, let's just let me ask you about that right now. Tell us about how did ice become an essential part of of bartending? Well, this is one of those the, 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 those very difficult questions to answer because people never really write about this stuff. Something that's so um, quotidian, an everyday thing, we just take for granted. But really, the, the genesis of it comes down to a man called Frederick Tudor, the so-called Boston Ice King, um, who was a very um, determined and stubborn gentleman who started exporting ice from New England to the tropics in 1806. And he would um, harvest the ice every winter, store it, load it into ships, and send it around the world, um, which seems a preposterous thing to do, but he made him a great deal of money, and it transformed the way in which people drink and feed themselves. And his one of his key marketing strategies, he writes about it very clearly in his letters to his various um, ice house operators around the Caribbean and the southern states of the United States, um, was to to get ice into bars, and he would start off by basically giving it away. Um, his theory being, um, he writes, I'm going to paraphrase now, if you'll excuse me, um, that you know, once someone has had their drink cold, they will not go back to having it warm again. Yeah, it's one of those things where where you don't, you know, people didn't realize that they needed ice until they had it in their lives, and that was the That's brilliance exactly of it. 
brilliance of Tudor is like you, he, he created a market for this ice by because people didn't realize they needed ice until all of a sudden it's like, oh, this, is, this makes things a lot better. Well, exactly. And, and, and the other thing about Tudor is he democratizes ice. Before him, it's very much a luxury commodity. If you were happily walking around, you know, late 18th, early 19th century London and you could afford it, you could buy ice cream at any number of confectioners around the city. But I quip in the book that if you couldn't afford servants, you probably couldn't afford the ice cream. Um, so what Tudor does is he doesn't just ship this stuff around the place. He makes it available to everybody uh, from all walks of life. He completely democratizes the experience of of having cold drinks, um, cold sweets to ice boxes, which is another thing. When he starts shipping to Charleston and Savannah, he starts also selling an ice box of basically his own invention where you put a carved out lump of ice in the top of it and keep your milk fresh, your eggs fresh, all those kinds of things for longer than you would normally be able to do. And and that transforms everything. I mean, as soon as you improve the level of food that people can eat, you change people. Yeah, we don't. You know, we, it's one of those things that you make quite clear in, in your book is it's hard to get records of things in the ancient past, especially um, when it's when it's kind of an everyday thing. People don't tend to write about it because it's not remarkable. I, I found it fascinating that people were using ice and harvesting it long before I would have imagined, you know, back in uh, BC times, BCE, that oh, yeah. people were using ice. Can you talk about a bit about your research into that? Yes. I mean, when one's sort of sifting through ancient books and all the rest of it, trying to find these references, they are few and far between. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first, as you say, is that often people don't write about it unless it is remarkable. So in the case of the very first ice house, which was um, in ancient Sumer, nowadays Iraq, which is almost impossible to imagine. That I, the, the city of Iraq, the very first city, its ruins are now in this barren, windswept desert. But when the city was founded, this was fertile, beautiful land that people could farm and all the rest of it, and they built an ice house. So remarkable that what was that that they actually wrote down the fact that year thirteen of the reign of um, Shulgi, I think his name is, is labelled as the year of the ice house. But the problem that we we have these are records that are written on clay tablets, and so that any of these tablets survive at all is remarkable. I, you know how many others that might detail how this ice was used, how it was done, might have been ground into dust, or they might have been just it might not have been written about. We don't know. The sources simply don't survive. But there we are looking at this um, sort of 4,000 and something BC record of people storing ice and, and, and using ice in the ancient world. And, and, and it goes on. We get these glimpses from that point into the modern era. And we were they the first people ever to do it? We, could, we don't know. We just know that. And that makes it tricky to, to try and read anything into it beyond the sheer fact that it happened. Um, one of the things I found really interesting, uh, just starting reading the book, is you, you kind of kick it off with explaining how cold can kill you. Yes. Um, and, and it's in quite detailed. And anybody who knows about hypothermia and, you know, being safe, like when you're in cold environments, you know, understands that your body starts to break down and go through a bunch of defense mechanisms when it gets too cold. Could you t talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. Well, the first thing that happens to you is you start to shiver. 
it's an involuntary response um and what's going on is your body is basically burning energy to tr to warm you up again um the next thing that happens is you'll start to feel your fingers your toes get numb and what's happening here is the body is withdrawing blood from your capillaries so that you don't waste heat right now it's it's sole issue is that preservation of warmth and we've all experienced this you know you step outside on, on on any cold day in any winter anywhere in the world you will feel these symptoms and they're perfectly normal where you have to start worrying is when you stop shivering your body no longer has the energy to expend on trying to warm you up that way and it has to preserve as much heat within the core as it possibly can the problem at this point is generally speaking when you do stop shivering if you're that cold you probably won't know about it which i suppose is a plus depending on your perspective yeah. your mind begins to wander um you are no longer rational people start laughing involuntarily at this point apparently it's quite i've never been that cold but apparently it's quite a trippy high not one that i would recommend and and what's happening here is, is the body is drawing as much as it can towards your core to keep your vital organs warm but what's also happening is that your brain at this point is requires less oxygen to function and this as we'll come on to turns out to be medically potentially quite useful and the next thing that, that you can happen is, is is that as you're in this sort of trippy state you start to feel warm people will sometimes in this case start to take off their clothes it's called paradoxical undressing uh, because they think that they, they think that they're warm of course, this is the worst thing they can possibly do. And then the final phase um, is something called terminal burrowing, where you will, in an instinctual level, try to find a small space to be warm in, and then you die. Uh, it's it's it, 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 not the worst way to go, um, but, you know, but, but most medical professionals will tell you nobody is really dead until they're warm and dead, because it is possible to bring people back from very deep stages of hypothermia um, and and doctors are, are actually surprisingly good at it. Yeah. And you, you point this out later in the book. I, I found that very interesting. I would not have thought about it being part of your story, but you go into some detail of how um, modern medicine uses cold now to, to preserve life, especially, and um, I was not aware of it, uh, when babies are born, that they are very vulnerable to having brain damage. Oh, yeah. Then, yes, they are. I'm, generally speaking, I, I'm, we're talking a, a, a rare number of births where there are complications which starves, starves the newborn of oxygen in the birthing process. And there are a number of, of, of reasons why this can happen, not least, for example, the umbilical cord getting tangled up around their neck and and things like this. The, 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 the problem that people have always had with this is that you don't tend to see the kind of brain damage caused by that oxygen starvation until the child's about two. And then you notice that something isn't quite right. But what they've, um, what scientists have come up with, and this is comparatively recent, like within the last 15 years or so, is when you get one of these complications, if they, they've discovered if you basically slap a cold cap onto the baby's head and chill down the child's brain, what that does is, is it means that the, um, the child's brain doesn't need as much oxygen. And so therefore, 
it won't get damaged by oxygen deprivation in the same way. Oh. And this is a, a huge success rate, particularly in the developed world. In the undeveloped, not so developed world, it has not proved so successful. Uh, and I was reading one paper about this the other day that suggests it's down to uh, nursing shortages. Uh, generally speaking, in Western hospitals, in a newborn unit, a, a newborn ICU, you'll pretty much have one nurse per patient. Uh, but that's not necessarily possible elsewhere. Um, so the success rates, for example, in India with the cool cap are not as good as they are in North America or Europe at the moment. But I'm sure that that will change. When you think of cold, of course, I always think of polar regions. And mm. it's fascinating to think of, you know, the modern gear that we have, say, for like scientists in the Antarctic or explorers that go down there to to do whatever. I mean, we have this incredible clothing now that can you know keep you safe in very cold environments. But oh, yeah. such was not the case with the first polar explorers. And you go into some detail about the Franklin expedition, which, which I found very interesting. Could you uh, get into that a bit? Yeah, well, the Franklin expedition um, set off from Britain in 1846. And it was one of many expeditions sent forth um, to try and find the so-called Northwest Passage across the top of Canada um, to speed up shipping to to the east. And people have been looking for this so-called route for years. I mean, uh, I'm the first British expedition was led by a guy called Martin Frobisher, who set off in 1547, I think, in the reign of Henry VII. And nobody had at this point managed to find it, despite you know huge amounts of, of exploration. Fra Franklin himself had been to the Arctic twice before, once in ships, once on an overland expedition, which went terribly badly wrong. He was fabled in the UK after that as the man who ate his boots because basically they only had shoe leather and, leather and lichen to, to eat because it all went so particularly bad. So the Franklin expedition, when it set forth, was probably the best equipped polar, edition, polar expedition that had ever been sent out at that time. But even then, it was woefully, woefully equipped for people to actually survive and live on the ice. Most of their, their, their warm clothes were made of wool, which while... You know, who doesn't love a nice woolly Christmas jumper? But if you are working in the Arctic and you get sweaty, your sweat soaks into the wool, and then when you stop working, that freezes. This, as I'm sure we can agree, is, is not good. No. But the other thing is, one has to say, they didn't anticipate having to get off the ships. Uh, they weren't trained to survive on land. All their training was devoted to being on those boats. And as soon as they, they, they lost the boats, and we're not sure exactly when that happened, but sometime in 1847, 1848, they lost the ships and they had to try and walk out. And they, they couldn't do it. Um, and basically they vanished. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Fred Hogg as we talk about his new book of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot.
And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with Fred Hogg, author of the new book of Ice and Men, as we talk about how we've harnessed the laws of thermodynamics to make ice, refrigerate foods, and cool our homes. I was fascinated by the story of how the the, the native people that live in the ice regions, the Inuit people, that they know how to live there. And we, the Europeans just did not figure out to take advantage of that, you know, that kind of knowledge. And I thought it was interesting how it, it, it came back that we actually found out about what may have happened to them through someone who, who was an Inuit person. Yes, this is a fantastic, um, very interesting uh, man called Louis Kamukak, who has sadly now passed on. Um, but he was an Inuit. He discovered the, uh, the story of Franklin via two distinct pathways. The first, when he was, um, it's one of those awful uh, programs that they used to have in um, Canada, North America, Australia, of trying to, quote, civilize, unquote, uh, their indigenous peoples by taking them away from their families and packing them off into schools far away from home. Incredibly cruel practice, which fortunately doesn't happen anymore. But this is what happened to him. And he was sent off to a school in, in southern Canada, and um, that's where he first heard the name of Franklin. But then he realized um, that he'd heard about this guy before through his grandmother's storytelling. And he became somewhat obsessed with, with the story of what happened to these ships and what happened to this crew, and began to piece together the local oral storytelling about these men um, and his particular insight because he was a native because he had the language was that if you just had a translation of the story it didn't really mean very much but if you had the context of who was telling the story you could work out where they'd been hunting in a given season so where they would have encountered these men you could put a date on it and you could therefore understand what was going on because for example, there's a, there's a name that crops up a lot called Agluka, which is basically um, a tall man with a big stride, is a rough paraphrase of what it means. Now, this can refer to a number of different people depending upon when the story is being told. So if it's being told in the 1820s, it refers to an explorer called James Clark Ross. If it's being told in the 1840s, it most likely refers to Francis Crozier, the second in command of the Franklin expedition. So Kamukak was able to piece all of this stuff together and it was through his information ultimately that the wrecks of the Erebus and the Terror were discovered exactly where the Inuit had said they were a testimony that had been roundly dismissed by white people for for generations and there it was their boats were right where they were supposed to be yeah including Charles Dickens got involved in this in a strange oh. way Oh, Dickens, don't get me started on Dickens. I can't stand the man. <laughs> Legacy of schooling. Just the uh, thing Dickens. to say at Christmas time. I know, exactly. Exactly. Awful, awful, awful racist man. Um, no, Dickens um, was a friend of Franklin's wife, Lady Jane Franklin. And when the first news came back of what had happened to the expedition in about 18... I think 1851, I, I may be a bit off on the dates. It's a while since I wrote the book. It was a harrowing story gathered from Inuit testimony, gathered by a man called James Ray, um, who's probably the only British polar explorer who never got a knighthood. And he told a, a story of, of 
absolute horror, starvation, and potentially anthropophagy, um, the eating of your dead comrades. And Dickens immediately, in, in a, a magazine that he published and wrote for called Household Words, began to rubbish this this story, saying this couldn't possibly have happened. The flower of the English Navy, had no, no, you know, and completely started debunking it on the basis that the people telling the story were, in his words, barbarous blubber eaters from the north. I'm preposterous. I I I I I find it unfathomable that we that one wouldn't accept their word but it was a different day and age absolutely well okay fast forward then into our story uh after polar expeditions and things like that how cold is being harnessed to fuel our civilization and the story of refrigeration and, and you mentioned um ice boxes earlier which were very yeah. common and i remember as a kid um my my grandparents and my mom used to re- refer to our refrigerator as the ice box and it didn't really dawn on me that that's what they used to be yeah my grandmother did too i'm 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 half jamaican my mother was born in montego bay and absolutely they they had an ice box and there was a daily ice delivery and and that's that's how that's how it used to be. I and mean, the the electrical refrigerator doesn't crop up until around the time of the First World War um, in the United States. And up until that point, generally speaking, people were quite content to have harvested natural ice. But the problem was increasingly pollution um, and the Industrial Revolution pouring all kinds of waste into rivers and waterways, raw sewage going into rivers and waterways. So the ice quality naturally deteriorated. So you had to find another solution. And 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 um, plant-made ice was, was was the key. But and while people had figured out how to make ice um, mechanically, it, it, it took a long time for, for 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 the demand to kick off in the kick off in the domestic arena. Um, breweries, the meatpacking industry, the fisheries had been using uh, plant generated ice for, for 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 several years before the actual fridge is invented. Um, but once 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 it has been invented, it, it particularly in 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 the United States, its its adoption is very very fast. You live in in Thailand, right, Fred? I, I, I do. I live in northern Thailand. Um, and it sounds like the, there's a lot of interesting bird life around you. There, yes, we 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 are blessed with a um a, a, a plethora of wildlife from uh, lots of incredibly lovely birds, butterflies, frogs, lizards. Um, so 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 we're very lucky in that regard. As long as the cat doesn't keep killing them. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend we're doing this this uh, interview with you. Uh, I was a jungle explorer because it sounds so really cool. <laughs> It, 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 it's 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 quite actually where we are. We're surrounded by flower farms, um, which they which, which which they grow in for the market down in 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 the city, um, and you know all kinds of beautiful sort of decorative things. A lot of a lot of marigolds, which they use here a lot in in Buddhist sort of stuff, which I don't which I don't really understand. But it, it, yes, it, it's it's a, it's a it's a very pretty spot to be in. Well, back to our story of of cold, and one yes. of the things that I uh, it dawned on me when I was reading this is, you know, knowing a lot about physics, and I know who I know who Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, was, and about thermodynamics. I never put it together though. As a kid, I remember the refrigerators were called Kelvinators. I didn't put the name together there. 
I didn't either until I stumbled across it. And I thought that was really quite cool. And see, I'm, I'm not very good with physics at all. I have to be honest. Um, it's something that I've only sort of become interested in as a, as a grown up. When I was at school, I, I just didn't understand it at all. You know, uh, I was much more interested in, in, in history and, and, and things like that. But as I've been researching this book, it's kind of been a, a crash course in, in, in things like thermodynamics and, 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 and the science behind heat exchange, which I, I never really appreciated before. Um, and Kelvin and Jewel um, doing that, that, that first work on, on heat exchange is, is, is fascinating stuff. And, and, and without it, we can't, we, we, we can't have the fridges that we do. But what, what I find fascinating, though, is that while they codified the actual science of it and how the science of it works, there were guys out there like John Gorey, who was one of the pioneers of the first refrigerators, who were basically using that science without knowing it. Um, and, and and inventing um, the heat exchange machines um, based on evaporative cooling um, that would become the very first fridges. And and, and didn't Einstein, Albert Einstein, and Leo Szilard, two the you know great physicists of the twentieth century, didn't they get involved in trying to make a refrigerator of some kind? They did. They did. They came up with about four different versions. And, and the, the reason behind why they did was that fridges were actually very dangerous um, in, in the first half of the century because uh, of the gases that they used as refrigerants, uh, highly toxic stuff. And so if the seal on your fridge failed, it could kill you. Um, and Einstein read a newspaper story about this I think sometime in the, in the mid-20s. It was absolutely horrifying. So we've got to be able to do better than this. And so the two of them got together and tried to invent a fridge. They never actually brought this fridge to market, but apparently it worked. Uh, but yes, he was. He, he, that, that was why. And solving the, the, the toxic gas issue in fridges was a, was a massive deal. And um, the company Frigidaire, which was owned by General Motors, um, they led the charge in trying to come up with a, a coolant that didn't kill people, uh, led by a guy called Thomas Midgley. One of one of the great great guys I've ever heard of. If you think if you think Charles Dickens is bad, go go, go read about Thomas Midgley. <laughs> well, M Midgley probably killed more people than anyone who hasn't started a war. He's responsible for tetraethyl lead, leaded gasoline. He is. He oh. is, and. And he, he gave a press conference when people begin to say, is this stuff toxic, where he would pour it all over his hands and say, look, no, it's totally fine. And then, of course, he got lead poisoning, um, ironically. Um, but he, he invented the, 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 the CFC coolants, um, which we then discovered were destroying our atmosphere sometime later. Um, and was, was a highly respected and, and celebrated chemist in his day and died somewhat comically and tragically um, after he had contracted polio and, and was, was broadly paralyzed. He invented a, a Wallace and Gromit-like contraption to help him get out of bed, which then strangled him. Oh, my. Uh, which is one of those little bizarre uh, <laughs> historical nuggets. I, no doubt there was a very, very clever man, a brilliant chemist, but, but his inventions have caused a lot of harm in the world. Turned out to be not so good, yes. Yeah. Well, and then along with refriger refrigerators and refrigeration, which allows you to keep your food 
cold. And one of the things I found interesting I think, that I parallels think that. What, 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 we, what we also need to, to throw in then, if you'll excuse me, is, is that it, it goes beyond just allowing to keep your food cold. Um, that in itself has, has, has a deeper level of me- meaning in terms of the better quality of nourishment that allows mm-hmm. us as an animal. Um, and it's not just keeping the food cold in our houses. It's from farm through the market all the way through with the cool chain. The cool and chain, this, yeah. And, and what, what, what this means is that we, um, we fundamentally changed our abilities to feed and nourish ourselves with better quality materials. Um, and, you know, it, it's long been said that one of the defining features of humanity is our ability to cook on fire and how cooked food released more nourishment into our systems, which allowed our brains to develop um, and allowed us to become the creature that we are today. Uh, I, I would argue that refrigeration, cool chains, and all the rest of it is doing something similar at the same time because, um, you know, so many millions, so many centuries later, uh, because when we are better nourished, it means we are more likely to get out of infancy, which means there are more of us. It means that um, women are likely to have less complications with childbirth. Um, it means that we can live longer. Uh, it makes us healthier. It, it's allowed um, the population to explode. You, you uh, make I, an I, interesting I, point about this in the book that we always think of the baby boom, especially in the United States, as the GIs coming home from World War II, and then you know they have all these babies, and I'm one of them. Um, but mm. you you say, well, there's also this parallel thing going on with you know almost every oh, American household has a refrigerator at this point. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there, there is no evidence to suggest that um, all the GIs coming home from the war were having more sex than people who didn't go to the war. Um, the, 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 they're actually a concomitant thing. There's definitely something else going on here rather than a bunch of horny soldiers coming home. Um, and, and it's a theory called appliance fertility. And it, it basically argues that, that, that the, the nourishment improvement by the fact, particularly in the United States, that it is the first refrigerated society, that the, the concomitant quality of nourishment um, is what leads to this explosion of, of, of children in, in that era, um, which is then largely, arguably, capped off by the, the advent of the contraceptive pill, which gives people much more control of their fertility. Yeah, I found that I found that very interesting. I hadn't thought about about it in those terms before. But you you, know, you make the point, and it's so true that the refrigerator is the central part of the modern kitchen because you know everything comes out of there to go you know into your meals, and it's just astonishing. It's one of those things we take for granted, but the refrigerator is is a miracle in our lives. I, there's a there's a wonderful English food writer called B. Wilson who describes it as as as, as being like the, the modern hearth of the home, where once everything orientated around the fireplace, now it orientates around the fridge. And I think she's absolutely right. Yeah, was, I thought that was really interesting. And uh, going along with refrigeration, uh, we have to talk about its 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 sibling, air conditioning, which is air conditioning. A, a, just amazing. You know, when you think about um, carrier who invented the modern air conditioner and, and the carrier corporation still around. I remember my father Brilliant guy. 
was uh, in the 1960s. Uh, he ran a, a sheet metal operation in Los Angeles that was basically uh, making ductwork oh, for wow. air conditioning in, in Southern California. Oh, wow. That's how our family basically got our meals on the table. But uh, when you think about air conditioning, it has really transformed uh, society in so many ways and made it possible for us to live in places where perhaps we should not. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, life here in Thailand would be insufferable without air conditioning, particularly in the hot season. Um, you know, it, and it allows populations to move. It allows uh, cities to, you know, Lagos in Nigeria has in the last 50 years increased its population by 41 times. I absolutely exploded. And that wouldn't happen without air conditioning. Air conditioning has allowed a massive population shift in the United States from north to south. Um, I, I was reading a thing the other day, which was basically about how Florida's population has exploded thanks to aircon, which has led to it having the, the massive increase in its number of electoral college votes and its political influence, and it's directly down to aircon. Wow, that's it. It really is amazing, and, and it's something again we take for granted. Um, but I know I haven't. Like the last few years, I live in a place where it gets very, very hot in the summer. You know, we've had temperatures approaching 120 here. Uh, especially in recent years, wow. you know, one, 115s and 112s are, you know, something that happens here. And I have a backup generator and I think to myself, you know, if the power goes out and I use my generator, you know, it's not a matter of convenience and comfort. It's a matter of survival. Oh, absolutely. The heat is just as dangerous as the cold. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the human body just cannot function um in hot temperatures and 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 so 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 yeah aircon is a is is is, is a fundamental the terrible downside about aircon though is it's incredibly inefficient in terms of uh the power that it uses versus the amount of um uh carbon dioxide that that power then produces into the atmosphere it aircon is incredibly inefficient and, and weirdly while fridges have got smaller and more compact and more um environmentally friendly air conditioning just just hasn't uh people aren't really don't 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 seem to while, while we're using more and more and more of it um most air conditioners are still surprisingly um cumbersome um and you know and it, I, it, 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 it's, it's staggering. It's, until you start thinking about aircon, you don't realize. And you look at a building like the United Nations building in New York, which oh, is yeah, that, that was big, fascinating. That big glass rectangle. Um, it requires an enormous amount of air conditioning just 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 for it to be habitable. Um, I forget what the amount was for their energy bill each year, but it was astounding. Oh, it's millions, millions. I I, I, I forget the number. I'm terrible with numbers. I think it was over a hundred. Over a hundred million. I think I think you're right. Ast astounding. I, I you know either there was the Burj Khalifa building in um, in Dubai. I mean, how much aircon does that thing need? It's staggering. You know, I, I, I when we sort of go into town here and you go into one of the big sort of malls in Chiang Mai or Bangkok, and it's all air conditioned. And, you know, delightfully cool as you walk through. But these are vast spaces, and it takes a lot of energy to bring their bring the temperature down. I, I Carrier himself describes it with um, one of his very first uh, public air conditioning jobs for um, Paramount Pictures in New York. 
um, and they installed air conditioning in a cinema there in, in 1922. And it took them a little while to get it going. And he describes the audience sitting there and they're all fanning themselves. And then slowly the fans get put down into laps and people settle down and it's all nice and cool. And they're, you know, they're waiting in the foyer for the results of um, how this thing has gone for um, Paramount's boss, Adolf Zucker, walks out and says, yeah, people will like this. <laughs> and that's that. Um, but yes, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time to make a space pleasant. If you're just joining us, our guest is British author Fred Hogg. Hogg joined us recently from his home in Thailand to talk about his new book of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. we're back and thanks for listening let's return now to our visit with author fred hogg as we talk about his new book of ice and men how we've used cold to transform humanity and for a lot of people i know as a child looking back on it air conditioning was not a common thing to have even in southern california which is a pretty hot place where i grew up mm. um, not everybody had ac i remember we had one little window unit in the upstairs bedroom but, you know, when you go to the theater to see a movie, you know, that was a lot of times reasons people wanted to go to the movies on a hot day was to get in the air conditioning. That's one of the key motors behind the summer blockbuster um, yes. is, 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 is exactly that. I mean, there used to be variety with, um, and Billboard would, would subtract the box office drop off in the summer before Carrier's invention. Now, they were talking back in the silent era, but this is... Um, this is one of the reasons why the summer blockbuster happens, you know, and, and, and then movie distributors adapt to deal with that. Right, people want to go into the cool in the summer, we're going to give them what they want. And it completely changes our movie-going consumption from the 70s onwards. Yeah. Well, it's surprising to me that it happened so late, though. I mean, you, you'd have thought that, you know, they might have cottoned onto it sooner, but it was always the, sort of the prestige time to open was always in the autumn and the winter in time for awards season. But, you know... Oh, yeah. But I, I know, you know, a lot of people love to go to the movies in the summer just because of that, you know, because it's a nice, cool place to go and be entertained and escape the heat of the day. Absolutely. You have a cool drink, have some popcorn, corn, be entertained. What, what, what could be better? And have to put on a sweater in July. It's like we always used to joke around. It's like, hey, don't for, don't forget your sweater, even though it's hot outside. You're you're going to be cold in the theater. Well, let's uh, let's also talk about cold as something really fun. And I I was not expecting to run across this in your book, but it it makes so much sense that we turned to cold for recreation and winter sports. And that you know that's that story is very fascinating. How we've turned cold into something to do for recreation. Yeah, it, it, this is quite an interesting one. I, I didn't realize until I was doing the research. I, I knew I wanted to write about, about skiing and the cold, um, but I didn't realize how comparatively recent alpine skiing is. Um, that was one of the things that actually blew my mind. And, and it's largely down to a, a French climber called Henri Duhamel, um, who was the, the guy who basically brought skis to the Alps. Prior to that, they were broadly speaking a Norwegian thing um and 
it, it transformed alpine life completely because suddenly people could get around in the winter time in a way that they couldn't before and 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 then having gone from from that it starts becoming becoming fun um and one of the things that, that, that's sort of very interesting to me is sort of what i call the invention of leisure and and the way in which um you know we've evolved this sort of um thing where we have our sort of five-day work week and then we have a weekend and time off and we can go and do stuff um and this is a very atypical in in human history this is a, a, a very new idea the weekend and it reminds me of maggie smith in downton abbey when she says what is a weekend oh yes you, you posh people don't say weekend uh, <laughs> i was talking to a, a, a friend of mine the other day who reminded me that that if one was lucky enough to be sort of invited to one of these, they would say would you like to come from friday through sunday as opposed to would you like to come for the weekend it's it's a, apparently this is how english people tell themselves apart it's apparently terribly common to say weekend uh not that i would know being just a you know a, 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 a much from the a much from the colonies um so yeah it, it, it it's it's a but leisure is, is a very interesting thing as people begin to have more money in their pockets and they want to find stuff to do and therefore you know clever canny business people start to provide things for them to do um like skiing and in the could you tell the story of the chairlift i found that to be really interesting how that became developed because i never thought about like who first thought of using making a chairlift so people could go up the hill to go skiing do you know i'm gonna have to look up his name now because um i i, I can't I'm, well this, this 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 is the thing and, and that that's why we have books um where's he gone where's he gone that's a medical chapter Okay, okay, where have we got? We've got, we've mentioned Dew Hamill, we're moving beyond Dew Hamill. Oh, yes, okay, the Union Pacific Railroad. So, there's a guy called William Avril Harrison, who is the chairman of the Union Pacific Railroad. And he decides, wouldn't it be a great thing to sell people uh, weekends in the snow to go skiing? So, he hires this Austrian bloke called uh, Felix Skafgotch, who's an Austrian count to go around the United States to try and find a place to build the perfect ski resort. Count Felix goes all over. He goes to Washington State, he goes to Utah, he goes to California, before he finally finds the spot in the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. And he says, this is ideal. And so they begin building the ski resort. But Harriman basically realizes, how are we going to get our guests up the mountain? And this has been a, a conundrum for skiing pretty much since people started skiing. You know, you, you you can drag people up on horses, you can go up in horse and carts, you can do various things with engines, but they're all incredibly inefficient. He happens to have working for him at the time, this guy called James Curran, who is a young engineer, self-taught, who's um, done all kinds of jobs before he comes to work for the railroad, including, you know, he was a pool hustler for a while. But the job he had immediately before was for the United Fruit Company where he invented this system of hooks and pulleys for loading bananas onto ships. And Curran basically says, well, we could do this with people. And everybody's horrified by the idea, and this, this is absolutely ridiculous. But he starts testing it, and he builds this contraption on the side of a flatbed truck with a sort of seat on it, and driving this along slowly with people on roller skates to test the getting on and getting off of this seat. And they work out the optimum speed of four miles an hour and from here he develops the chairlift to hoist people 
up and over the mountains of of, of Sun Valley, um, and and it works. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's um, he's cracked the conundrum and basically ski lifts to his design and and improved upon them are now in use all over the world. Um, it, it's baffling, but brilliant. Yeah. So those of you who are downhill skiers listening to this, next time you go up to Tahoe or wherever, um, take take a banana with you on the chairlift, and you know find that find that connection to history. Raise a banana to Mister Curran. Exactly. Well, <laughs> the the final uh, chapter in your book was something I I kind of could have predicted was that now we are living in this warming planet. Uh, ice is becoming more and more, more and more endangered around the world, especially in the polar regions. We have um, the, the Arctic becoming ice-free in the summertime, where mm-hmm. you know navigation is is much easier and going to lead to all kinds of interesting uh, geopolitical situations there. But uh, you you point out some really uh, kind of scary things about uh, there's this really amazing ice ice sheet in uh, Antarctica. Um, called yes. Thwaite, a, a glacier. The Thwaite Glacier. And yeah. and yes, that 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 is is called the Doomsday Glacier. It is, uh, and and rightly so, because it it basically bottles up um, an enormous ice ice sheet behind it, which sits in a big, big bowl of of rock. And 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 the problem with Thwaites in particular is that most glaciers around the world that are melting horrifically are melting from the top. Thwaites is melting from the bottom. And what that means is that water's being able to get in underneath it and flow down into that bowl upon which the ice sheet sits. So if and when Thwaites goes, all of that concomitant water behind it will come with it. And that will be genuinely catastrophic uh, for sea levels um, around the world. the Maldives, for example, will be flooded out. A lot of Florida will be flooded out. Um, it's very, very hard to put a, a a price tag upon the damage that it will do. Um, I the, the the melting is genuinely frightening, and because it, it it seems so hard to see and so hard to follow, you know, when glaciers seem such massive, seemingly permanent things. Um, but they're not, and when they go, they go suddenly. Um, this is this is not a gradual process. It 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 it, it, it it'll just melt, 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 and then boom, gone. Um, yes, and uh, it, when we when we look at around the world, we can we can actually document the shrinking of glaciers, and I, I we can see it here in California in the Sierra Nevada where we're almost getting to the point where there are going to be no glaciers in the Sierra Nevada, uh, which is alarming. That's a terrifying prospect. I mean, I, I, I used to come up to California a lot. Uh, and um, I remember being in Los Angeles in, in, in January and you used to be able to see the snow on distant mountains. And, and increasingly, you know, I, I was lost there eight years ago, but you don't see it so much. You know, you, that sort of wintry view is gone. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that has huge repercussions. I mean, the Himalayas is the, probably the third, is the third largest repository of ice in the world. And it supplies the water needs of, of over a billion people um, down the major rivers like the Ganges, the Yangtze, the Mekong. Um, if the Himalayan glaciers were to melt, then 
this part of the world where I'm living right now would be absolutely screwed. And we completely rely on water from 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 that far away. Um, and it's it, it's and, and it's much the same in California where we depend on that Sierra snowpack. Um, and absolutely. When we when we get less of that and more rain, uh, it creates a severe problem for long term water use. And and you just have to look at sort of the um was it Lake Mead I think it is and the the um, staggering amount of of, of evaporation and, and how low the water supply is there because in California you depend on was it the Colorado River? Uh, well, it depends on where you are. California is a very big place, so in yes, Southern yes. California they do. Yeah, um, and and I think that you know water needs um you know air conditioning has allowed us to move into these dry places um but therefore we need somehow to find a way to supply ourselves with water to live there and to grow things there and all the rest of it as um and water is extremely valuable as 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 we learn in the movie chinatown um you know it's, it water is a source of enormous power um both figuratively and literally um and when it melts when it dries up there are problems and there will be um, human migrations as a result of that trying to find water there'll be fighting over water i i, I think that the um the, the the prospects of a barren planet are, are are very very worrying yes well um it's been really f fun and fascinating to talk to you about this book uh and you've mentioned well, you. you're, you're moving on to something else what are you what are you working on now well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put together a book proposal. I, I want to write about the um, relationship between mythology and history. Ooh, fascinating. Um, which is, is something I, I've been very interested in and try and pick a, a sort of number of sort of um, chunks of myth and history throughout the historical era to, to, to talk about from like the Trojan War through to people like King Arthur and Robin Hood and where does the historicity lie in these stories and, and how the two feed across each other. And Alexander the Great is a, is a fantastic one for this because while we have the history of Alexander on one side, which is written you know, about 300 years after he, he died, the surviving books, we also have this other mental book called The Romance of Alexander in which he, he gets up to all kinds of um, mythological excitements. Um, and, and somehow the two books in, in various manuscripts start to sort of feed into each other. And, and and I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Well, Fred Hogg, it's been a joy to talk to you about this book of Ice and Men. Uh, it's, Likewise, it's, thank it's, you. And I should point out there are many women mentioned in it too. It's just you have a lot of uh, there's a lot of chapter titles that are kind of play on words fun. So I think that's where the title comes from too, right? I, I can't resist the bad part. Yes, that's, and it's very enter, enter, entertaining reading. So thanks for joining us. We we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again to our guest, Fred Hogg. You can get his new book of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity at Most Booksellers. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>